Welcome to a discussion on Angel Oak's 2021 Mid-Year Outlook. My name is David Wells, and I am the Chief Portfolio Strategist at Angel Oak Capital. I am joined by our Chief Investment Officer of Public Strategy, Sam Dunlop, and Senior Portfolio Managers, Colin McBurnett and Clayton Trick. During this conversation, we will discuss year-to-date performance for the fixed income markets, our macro views, and dig deeper into U.S. structured credit fundamentals. Looking back on the first quarter of 2021, people were concerned about the reopening of the economy, the rollout of the vaccines. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the first quarter and uh, what you saw from an inflation standpoint and and what the effect has been on fixed income when the reopening of the economy? Yeah, it's something that we were really particularly cautious towards as we kicked off the year. David, as as you highlighted in our annual outlook, as we noted at the beginning of 2021, we were getting concerned about the long end of the risk-free curve in particular, and also the implications that that would have for traditional fixed income, notably the Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate Index and and the Bloomberg Barclays Investment Grade Corporate Index, which fell under an inordinate amount of pressure and actually had one of the worst starts to the year that they've seen since the 1980s. We were cautious given the the amount of interest rate sensitivity and longer duration fixed income as we just thought that naturally rates would begin to rise, particularly on the heels of the reopening from the all-time lows. It was risk-free rates were arguably one of the last areas in the major asset classes to, to correct and, and reach pre-pandemic levels. And if you couple that with the, the inordinate amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus, as well as the, the brisk growth that we expected on the heels of the vaccine, that certainly became the case for longer duration fixed income and structured credit in areas of high yield and within investment grade credit financials, for example, all significantly outperformed the broader indexes, which we thought was notable. And we expect that to continue to be the case heading into the second half of this year is that despite the rally that we've seen in in longer-term risk-free rates in the second quarter, and and even more recently, the the debate on the recent change in the Fed dot plots, as well as uh, this ever-raging debate, rather, on on uh, whether or not the inflation uh, data is, is more transitory or persistent. Uh, we think that the second half of this year, uh, that the, data, the inflation data, in particular, and growth data will, will definitely begin to be perceived as, as more persistent, and that will be reflected in the longer end of the risk-free curve again. And we expect more of a grind higher again in the long end. And we think structured credit, and particularly areas of select areas of high yield, and again, financials, will hold up really well in that environment. We, we think that here at the zero bound, which is the really the theme of, of, of this year's mid-year outlook, we think that income that we seek, particularly in the areas of structured credit we focus on, will continue to really differentiate itself, and income will be a key driver of, of total return here because one of the struggles that spreads and risk-free rates are really at all-time lows that we've seen, and that does pose a challenge for investors and especially for, for our income-focused investors here at the zero bound. Within your mid-year outlook, you talk about certain areas within the fixed income market that you see relative value. Can you discuss some of those areas as we move into the second half of 2021? So as we take a step back and as we think about, in, in particular, the, the second half of this year, but, but leading into 2022, this is going to be a long time here at the zero bound. And with investment grade and high yield corporates in particular approaching near all-time tights from a spread perspective and an investment grade and still a, nearly an all-time high from an interest rate sensitivity perspective, we favor the shorter duration areas of structure credit at or approaching all-time tights. Here at the Zero Bound, we continue to favor areas of the senior legacy non-agency RMBS market. Uh, continues to be a very favorable allocation and geared more towards the improvement in mortgage credit as well as areas of 
mezzanine tranches of, of RMBS 2.0 uh, continue to benefit from this reflationary environment, high current income, as well as what we view as a potential for further spread tightening ahead, even in, even in the second half of this year. Uh, we also favor seasoned areas of, of consumer and auto ABS, uh, again, backing the reflationary themes here uh, that, that we capture, for example, on RMBS, the reflationary aspect of U.S. houses. We're seeing that in the auto a- ABS allocation, but also just the the very favorable uh, credit profile of the U.S. consumer. Not only are they benefiting from rising wages, but a very robust labor market that we expect to continue. A lot of savings coming out of the COVID crisis, which is very unique, but also, uh, again, surging collateral prices being just, just what we've seen in used car prices has been nothing short of extraordinary. And we also favor areas away from RMBS and ABS. Those include CLOs. We're positioning the portfolio within the CLO allocation to continue to benefit from the low corporate credit default rate. Uh, as well as the a greater protection that you garner uh, for some of the favorable characteristics of bank loans, given that bank loans are floating rates, senior secured loans to, to high-yield corporations in the U.S. Uh, CLOs give you extra credit and protection in the form of over-collateralization over or credit enhancement that we continue to, to like in this environment. But uh, CLOs, in our opinion, offer much more relative value uh, and high current income uh, and a floating rate security. So that we think that'll continue to, to, to be a key driver of, of income and potential price appreciation here in the second half. And we also continue to overweight select subsectors within our corporate allocation. If you think about IG, you know, one of our, again, highest conviction ideas across the firm continues to be financials. Uh, that's an area of IG that resembles more high yield like spreads with uh, investment grade like characteristics. And then within the high yield allocation in particular, just favoring pro-cyclical higher growth areas of, of the economy that are benefiting from the inflation and, and asset heavy balance sheets. And those include financials, energy, and basic industries, again, over sectors with less relative value, such as communications, pharmaceuticals, or or health insurance. And then within CMBS, we continue to be very selective. Again, CMBS has faced a tremendous amount of of credit headwinds coming into and out of COVID. Uh, We continue to be very selective there, but we've been pleasantly surprised at what we've seen thus far and and, uh, particularly collateral values within CMBS, but but continue to favor select niche opportunities uh, with very conservative underwriting standards and, and, and high current spreads. One of the concerns in the first half of the year was that we would see a pickup in inflation. Now that we've seen a pickup in inflation, do you think that the inflation is going to be more transitory or persistent? So we're definitely more in the persistent camp. The debate will continue to rage on, but I think that even the some of the transitory inflation got a lot of market participants' attention. Notably, again, just the pure year-over-year rise and the headline number of 5% driven by some pretty meteoric rises in areas that we'll touch on today, like used car prices, home prices, far beyond a lot of market participants' expectations, regardless of supply bottlenecks. You just had some incredible price action there that we think those factors may perhaps be a bit more transitory, but some of the persistence, in our opinion, is going to come through a lot of how we think about not only these strategies from a pure credit fundamental standpoint, but also due to a lot of the the, the, the very favorable pro-demographic trends that we're seeing in the U.S. from the millennials. So millennials apply across a whole host of our strategies, and you'll see that in this year's mid-year outlook. But the interesting component of where the millennials sit today, being at the really their prime years for not only household formation, but also leverage and buying their first home and, and actually increasing their leverage notably, that's historically been attributed to some more persistent inflation data. The 
baby boomers, for example, as they reach their prime household formation and leverage years, you really started to see some more persistent inflation in the form of CPI, as we highlighted in this year's uh, mid-year outlook. So we think, again, the, the trends that we're starting to really see play out that we have been arguably ahead of here on the supply and demand dynamic in U.S. households, as those millennials continue to come online, continue to not only form households, but, but reach their peak leverage years, we think that's very stimulative for growth and very supportive of the persistence and inflation argument. But then you couple the rise of the millennial with a literally never before seen coordinated fiscal monetary policy action to create wage inflation to reduce the wealth gap and create the social mobility needed to reduce that wealth gap. So that secular shift from from a Fed policy perspective in particular coupled with the rising millennial and, and more leverage within the millennial landscape, we think is going to be hugely supportive for the persistence argument. So we're not in the camp that we're going to have the 1980s style inflation, but could we persist in the four to five percent range here over the next couple of years? We think that that could definitely be the case. And we would, again, caution investors as you grapple with the zero bound to, to be tempted to extend duration in environments like this. Sam mentioned a little bit about housing and used car values as areas that we've seen pick up in valuations. Obviously, residential real estate in the United States has been probably one of the star performers coming out of the March 2020 COVID shutdowns. Colin, can you talk a little bit about what's driving the higher prices in the mortgage market? And do you see this as being something similar to what occurred in 2008? Sam touched on some incredible home price appreciation numbers. The last Case Shiller reading uh, before we recorded this was up 13.19%, uh, which is an incredibly quick pace of appreciation. One of the fastest that we've seen uh, since 2004. Uh, I think the what really separates this time from uh, the last time we saw meaningful run-up in, in home prices prior to the global financial crisis is what's driving that, that increase in value. Back then, it was very much a leverage story. You were seeing people own multiple houses. You had uh, a tremendous amount of homes being built across the country, tons of supply, uh, and that was being absorbed by investors for largely non-owner-occupied purposes uh, with a lot of leverage being added to the housing market. Today, it's almost the opposite. You have record lows in supply of both existing homes and of new homes, largely driven by a meaningful lack of investment in the housing market over the past 13 years. Since the global financial crisis, or since the onset of the global financial crisis, home building in the U.S. has lagged by about 50% of what would have been deemed necessary to keep up with household formation over that time. And that's really come home to roost as people, once, once kind of experiencing what they did over the past year have really accelerated that move out of cities and more dense environments and into uh, and, and, and likely out of communal living uh, and into single family residences, uh, whether that be you know, in town or, or suburbs um, or even smaller towns and rural areas. We've seen that migration kind of happen at a very rapid pace over the past year. Again, when met with lack of supply has driven up home prices to the, to the number we referenced. One thing I think that's worth noting, again, just to look at some hard numbers around the difference between now and then is the amount of debt that was added to the system versus the amount of value in the housing market that's been added. We have seen, despite the increase in the housing market value, Case Shiller, as, as you can see on the figure, is, is well north of where it was prior to the global financial crisis. Uh, we've added about $7.7 trillion of value of the housing market since 2006, and yet we've only increased the amount of mortgage debt outstanding by a little over a trillion. So it's been a much more responsible kind of demand-driven 
an equity-driven rally in housing as opposed to something that was debt-driven prior to the global financial crisis. As interest rates have backed up since the summer of 2020, we saw a big spike in rates in the first half of the year. That's settled down now. The concern is that mortgage rates are going to continue to rise, which is going to make housing less affordable. What have you seen in the marketplace from an affordability standpoint, and do you see this even in today's higher rate environment lasting? Yeah, affordability is definitely something that could create a headwind over time. With the run-up that we've seen uh, in home prices, um, it's clearly getting more expensive to own a home. But we have charts in the outlook that I think are worth looking at uh, when examining that question. One is is the chart on 30-year mortgage rates. And while this looks at a very confined time frame, where it looks like mortgage rates have moved meaningfully off the bottom, if you stretch that out over any reasonable time period, it's it's hardly discernible that we've come off the bottom in mortgage rates. So while we've seen a slight increase, which, by the way, has been hampered or, or helped quite a bit by a collapsing of the primary secondary spread in the mortgage market, it is still historically low by, by all measures. But looking at a few other charts in the outlook, one looks at, at mortgage payment to income and rent versus mortgage payment. And as you can see, those relationships are as attractive as they've ever been in favor of home ownership. Even with the increase in value, uh, and with a minor increase that we've seen in mortgage rates, it is still, on a relative basis, incredibly affordable, looking back over history, to own a home today. I think the largest headwind to that is that while you have home prices appreciating faster than wages, it's incrementally harder to amass a down payment. And we've seen within mortgage credit availability that it was already low heading into COVID, and we saw it drop by almost a third immediately following the COVID crisis. And while we've seen a little bit of expansion off the bottom, mortgage credit is still, from an availability perspective, very hard to obtain. We think that over the next few years, we could see responsible expansion of that credit box. I think that some of what we've seen recently out of the Biden administration and their plans for the FHFA will begin that expansion. And we're going to look to the private market to continue providing a responsible expansion of credit to enable people to get into homes. We're going to look this year for an expansion of mortgage credit, both uh, out of Fannie and Freddie. Uh, likely some of the, the initiatives that we're going to see out of the FHFA in the coming weeks uh, should help provide some credit expansion. And then we also think that the private market or private lenders and banks can also lead us down a path of responsible expansion of credit to enable a larger share of the U.S. to access home ownership. You talked about the lack of supply in the residential real estate marketplace. What's leading to some of that lack of supply? Why are builders not stepping into the market and building homes to meet this demand that is really picked up? Or what are some of the bottlenecks that you're finding within the residential real estate space to increase that supply? There's been a number of, of headwinds, I think, at the, at the sector level. Things like land use regulation, which is, has continued to increase with each with each passing year, and that that's around zoning laws. So it's incrementally more expensive and takes a longer time to build. Also, the finance model for home builders has certainly been a headwind, as has material cost and, and labor shortages. But I think one other thing worth noting is that for the past really 15 years, the trend from a population perspective has been into the city and into more dense environments where there's less land available to build. And with we were already we've been talking about it for a few years already in the camp that as millennials reached that peak age for first time home purchasing that we would see that trend reverse and, and start to see more buying in the suburbs and areas where they could obtain more space and housing would be more affordable. And COVID really accelerated that. I think is not just the millennial generation, but others sought to get out of more dense environments and, and into environments where they have more space. So I think now that you've got population trends in a favorable path for home building, where builders can get comfortable that if they build in an area where land is available, that people are interested and will come, I think that should also help really spur uh, home builder confidence and, and the uh, expansion of the number of units they're delivering on a, on a monthly basis. Within the residential mortgage-backed security market, where are you finding the most relative value today? So as Sam highlighted earlier, 
on our inflationary view and kind of our macro view overall of a positive growth environment, uh, inflating asset prices, a healthy U.S. consumer, it really kind of forms the backdrop for where within the RMBS space we've we're investing. Legacy RMBS continues to be the largest allocation that we have in aggregate within the fund. We continue to like that market for its its high current carry characteristics, uh, its resiliency to spread widening as well as to to defaults, as well as the discounted dollar price nature that it that it exhibits. But as we look across the new issue landscape, we've made quite a few changes to our allocation over the past year. One of the places where we have, have really increased our allocation has been to Prime Jumbo. For, we've mentioned on, on prior quarterly calls and such, one of the reasons why that's been the case is that it was a space that was dominated pre-COVID by REITs and hedge funds, many of which were kind of forced out of that space, either due to margin calls or to you know restructuring of their strategy. Uh, and it was a place where we, saw, where we thought we could go get access to America's best borrower, take some credit risk off of that borrower, uh, where you have a few hundred thousand dollars of equity in the underlying mortgages with homes that are appreciating on par with, with the U.S. at 13.2%. Uh, on an annual basis and and be able to capture quite a bit of additional return over the market uh, for being invested there. Another place that we've really liked, it's a little bit more esoteric, has been mortgage insurance. Uh, mortgage insurance is very LTV dependent. It focuses on, on higher loan-to-value mortgages, most of which are originated by Fannie and Freddie as part of their first-time home buyer programs. And that has been a place where we've been able to utilize our macro view of home price appreciation and, again, of, of a healthy consumer to, to take some credit risk there as well and really benefit from that reflationary environment that lead to those positions being particularly high carry, lower credit risk than, than what was originally assumed at issue, uh, and much shorter than we were originally expecting as well. Uh, so those two spaces have been kind of our favorite places to allocate new dollars over the past year. Uh, that's come at the expense of some of the reperforming loan allocation that we've had, which has continued to tighten in. So we've, we've really benefited from that spread tightening, but don't, at today's spreads, uh, see a whole lot of additional total return there, uh, as well as non-QM. It's been a wonderful time for non-QM issuers to issue bonds, uh, but just with the, the spread context and the structure in the market today has been a place that within our public fund complex, we're less allocated to today than we were a year ago. Sam talked about the strength of the consumer coming out of the COVID crisis. What have you seen the consumer do with the unprecedented amount of stimulus they've been given from the government? The COVID crisis was a much different recession that we would typically see during a downdraft in the uh, in the United States. The U.S. consumer was quite resilient. While unemployment spiked initially, the incredible amount of stimulus from D.C., both on the fiscal side and monetary side, produced a much different output really throughout 2020. I would say the biggest surprise that we saw here was really related to how resilient the U.S. consumer was. We were bullish on the consumer going into COVID, and we were definitely bullish coming out of it. But the improvement and the resiliency of the consumer from a collateral perspective within the ABS markets cannot be overstated. In a typical recession, you see an increase in delinquency rates across various areas of consumer credit, um, including credit cards, student loans, you know, and, and vulnerable areas of, of U.S. consumer credit. Whereas this time, you actually saw a decrease in seriously delinquent borrowers in the latter half of 2020. Credit card delinquencies, auto loan delinquencies, student loan delinquencies, all areas of, of consumer credit actually saw a fall in the 90-plus delinquency rate. That also in, it does include U.S. mortgage credit toward the end of, of 2020. This is one of the biggest surprises. If you look at the underlying collateral within various areas of the asset-backed securities market, you also saw some of the best performance at the collateral level that we've seen, something that's quite the opposite that you would expect coming out of a typical recession. 
One area that's gotten a lot of attention recently is the increase in used car valuations or in the automobile market. Within the asset-backed security market, you've taken advantage of, of the spike in valuations in automobiles. Can you talk a little bit about what's caused the spike within that marketplace? You know, Prior to COVID, we saw a lot of articles and a lot of uh, press related to the amount of cars out in, in the U.S. market and really just the overall caution as the sharing economy was becoming a much more important of American society. Individuals uh, renting more their homes, um, individuals uh, using public transportation and Uber more often. Coming out of the COVID recession, there was really this improvement in, in increased demand for private space over public space. And so within the used vehicle value market, we saw increase in, in demand for cars, um, individuals getting stimulus checks and spending them on vehicles and on goods in general. If you look at the, you know, the headline U.S. Vehicle Valuation Index produced by Mannheim, the chart actually looks like a meme stock. You saw an increase of 50% year over year of used vehicle valuations. If you compare them to pre-COVID levels, used vehicle valuations are up approximately 40%. This is just an incredible move. And if you compare it to the prior 25 years, in 2021 alone, the increase in used vehicle valuations equals the prior 25 years of appreciation. It's just pretty a pretty incredible move. This is driven, in our view, one, like we mentioned, from the demand for private space over public space and individuals wanting to own their own car as opposed to utilizing public transportation, but it's also due to some supply shortages as well. So you know, in our view, we don't necessarily think that the improvement in used vehicle valuations will continue to increase, but you can, it also is a symptom of how positive the consumer and how resilient the consumer has been during the recession and, and really foreshadowing what's to come. Moving into the second half of 2021, where are you finding relative value within the asset-backed security market? So there have been some broad changes in the asset-backed security valuation following uh, 2020. First off, um, last year, uh, the reintroduction of TALF created significant spread tightening at the top of the capital structure. Alongside, you saw this improvement in the collateral and the resiliency of consumer credit, both in the auto loan market, but also in the consumer ABS market. As we look forward, we are really preferring seasoned deals within the asset-backed securities market, particularly on the auto loan side. As we talked about, used vehicle valuations have improved rapidly. Now, we don't necessarily expect used vehicle valuations for the rest of 2021 to increase at the same level they have year to date. But if you think about deals and individual bonds that were created in the last six to 12 months, uh, the car, the mark-to-market basis of the vehicle is significantly lower. In our current portfolio today, the average seasoning of the auto loans within the collateral is approximately 20 months. That is a significant lower basis in mark-to-market LTVs of cars within the season bonds versus ones that are coming to market today. We see a lot of value in mezzanine consumer loan ABS and season auto loan ABS today. One area that you do seem cautious on is the commercial real estate marketplace. What are some of the concerns you have within the commercial real estate market today? So commercial real estate has been a really hot topic since COVID crisis began. The lack of business travel certainly weighed on on hospitality. Uh, retail has had uh, a number of, of well-documented issues even prior to March of last year. Uh, and office really went through or is continuing to go through a pretty major change uh, as a number of corporations across the U.S. wrestle with 
how they're going to accommodate or if they are going to accommodate uh, a hybrid or work from home model looking forward. For sure, there'll be ample opportunity within within the commercial real estate space when it, when expressed in, in the right vehicle. For us today, with our commercial real estate expertise, we are currently focusing on two separate areas. One is agency CMBS. We like that f- for the liquidity that it provides. We favor it over agency RMBS uh, as, a, as a place within our portfolio. Uh, thanks to more favorable duration characteristics and and a positively convex profile versus versus the negatively convex profile that agency RMBS presents on the credit side, uh, again, as the commercial real estate continues to work, market continues to work through a number of issues, uh, we want to be very selective um, in where we're investing, not trying to to grab distressed assets, uh, but rather take advantage of very high quality assets. Uh, that are suffering from lack of financing due to all of the distress that's out there. Uh, and so we've been able to identify very certain multifamily properties or properties that, that relate to uh, the healthcare sector that we feel like are kind of being lumped in with a number of distressed assets out there and are, and are as a result, uh, seeing a much higher cost of capital and much more favorable leverage terms. Uh, so our deployment of capital in that space has been small. Uh, but but particularly accretive to the strategy. Obviously, the hunt for yield, is going to remain in full force as we move into the second half of 2021. What would you like investors to take away from your outlook? We'd like investors to know that there's still hope here at the zero bound. Uh, and we would encourage investors to focus on uh, high income, shorter duration areas of U.S. structured credit, including non-agency RMBS, consumer-centric areas of ABS, mezzanine portions of CLOs, and select areas of high-yield corporates and, and financials within the IG space. We think all of those areas will continue to benefit from the reflationary campaign from not only the Fed, but Treasury and the Biden administration. We think this is not only a near-term theme, but we think that'll continue to win out here in the years ahead at the zero bound.